since it's about boasting, I may as well say it was a spectacular sermon this morning, uh, mainly because I managed to send this flying off everywhere and water just poured. Uh, it was like a little you know, Niagara Falls for a while. Um, so I'm going to try and avoid that if possible, though no guarantees offered. If you have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 3, that will be great. Um, as you know, um, this is a series that I've called Dying and Rising in Christ, The Secret to Spiritual Growth. And uh, really, at one level, I'll get to the secret of what I'm on about um, from this passage, though it was certainly all there in miniature in last week's um, talk. But you'll notice that I will spend quite a lot of time in particular on verses 9 to 10 uh, because they unfold the whole idea of dying and rising in Christ, which uh, probably is uh, just a bit of an idea in your mind at the moment uh, and maybe there's not a great deal of clarity about what Paul means by that. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. I just pray that you will help me to teach it with clarity and with application to our lives. Uh, We give you thanks for every person here. We just pray for uh, Stu and Mandy and the kids uh, over there in Kenya and uh, just your blessings upon them at the moment. But we pray above all for blessings upon us as we hear your word explained. Help us to obey it and to be changed by its power so that we might be better servants of you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Um, Since I'm an ex-high school teacher, I did that for 15 years in a previous life, uh, it's good to uh, revise what we've done. Um, So first slide, please. Um, Last week, as you know, I just said a little bit about the town of Philippi, and uh, there it is for you. Uh, I made the point that it was a Roman colony, i.e. the people who were there were ex-army. They were veterans of the army of Augustus who fought a great battle there in 42 BC. I won't bore you with that. And uh, what he did was that he rewarded his troops um, with land overseas. And uh, it was in the area of Macedonia at Philippi. And he gave them citizenship And he gave them, as I said, the ability to farm in their declining years. Uh, What was impressive about this is that all the rights you had as a Roman citizen in Rome were transferred to that city. And it's important to see that this city is a mini-Rome in its organisation, its gods, its politics and values. What Rome does, Philippi does. Next slide, please. And you might remember that I did a little study of what it would like to be one of the people uh, in that Roman colony and we looked at that monument of Maximus and we saw that it was a fascinating monument because it's like every other one in Philippi in the sense that what you do is you boast about what you've achieved and you move from the lowest thing you've achieved to the most impressive thing that you've achieved. So it's a progression in status And uh, next slide, please. There always was a little picture either summed up in words on the actual inscription itself or summed up with words plus a picture on the inscription itself. And this is what you got here. And uh, Maximus is saying, I'm the one who captured King Decabalus. And there, of course, is Maximus. Uh, jumping over the king and his horse there and uh, very soon afterwards he removed the king's head and presented it to the emperor Trajan. Um, So this is the kind of audience that comprised Philippi, ex-army and their descendants. Now how does Paul respond to a culture like this that's full of boasting? What he did, as we saw in Philippians 2, was to present Christ in all his glory at the beginning and then to show how this great and glorious one, the eternal son, God himself, 
had stepped down in seven stages of humiliation, which was summed up finally once again in a key picture on the cross with all shame. Next picture, please. And we saw this wonderful bit of graffiti, didn't we? Which came from Rome. And this is anti-Christian graffiti. And shows the little funny guy on the right with his hand sort of extended up like that. <coughs> you can see the graffiti or the scribble there in the middle of it. And it says, Alexamenos, that's the Christian, worships his God. And his God, if you look in the middle, is there he is. The crucified guy with a donkey's head on top of his shoulders. And that figure was well known because in the mime troops that went from city to city, there was a little character that came out called Donkey Man, who was one who wore a donkey's head and as soon as he came on the stage, everyone slapped him around the face and ridiculed him. And Paul was saying, uh, sorry, the anti-Christian guy saying, this is the God the Christians worship, foolish and stupid and deserving to be beaten up. So there's the shame of the God that Paul worshipped and indeed whom we worship. Because, as we know, we only have to turn on our TV or electronic devices and you'll find any amount of comedians today mocking Christianity in exactly the same way. It's the same culture out there, ladies and gentlemen, now things have changed very quickly in our country. Now, of course, you're thinking about this boasting culture and you're saying, well, obviously, the Jews weren't like that. And Jeremy, of course, uh, read out for us very well that great passage in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. I think it is. Um, No, it isn't, sorry. Uh, uh, Verses 23 to 24, where God says that Boasting doesn't characterise the people of God. And, uh, of course, Jews wouldn't be like that. Or perhaps they were. Next slide, please. (coughs) In this teeny bit of writing that's totally illegible there. Next slide, please, sorry. Um, And I'm not going to read it all out. I'm just going to give you a summary of it. Is what Josephus who's a Jewish historian, writing at the same time as Paul, says about himself. And it's all about me, 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 me. And he says, on my dad's side, they were all high priests. On my mum's side, they come from kings, the Hasmoneans. That's my family tree. And they also were high priests. And then he says, oh, and by the way, when I was a 14-year-old boy, my education was so great that all the priests from Jerusalem would come around and check out details concerning the law and the writings with me. And as a 14-year-old boy, I tell them more about it. And then he goes on to boast in his military career and so it goes on, yada, yada, yada. You see, what I'm trying to help you to see here is that the culture of boasting in the Greek and Roman world had affected Jewish culture as much as Greco-Roman culture. That is how it's done. Very important to realise that because it will help you to start to see what Paul is doing. Now, Paul has a potential problem or a real problem at the church. We're not quite sure. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. And we see this in verse 2 because there are some intruders there and Paul describes them in Jewish terms and either they are genuine opponents of Paul in the church who have come and what they are doing is they're downplaying, downplaying the importance of Jesus and saying, well, uh, yes, that's, uh, Jesus is good but the law is more important or Paul is warning of warning the Philippians of impending visitors like this to come. And certainly they did come into Paul's churches. We know that just to cite two examples uh, at Galatia and, of course, at Corinth. And Paul might be just warning, more is to come in your case, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Or they might be actually there. 
What matters is how Paul describes them. And you'll notice in verse 2, hardly complimentary, that he starts off calling these people those dogs. Not nice to call that, uh, call anyone that, to be honest, even in our culture. Now, why is he doing that? Because Jews used to call Gentiles dogs. And Paul's turned the term back on these Jewish opponents. You're the dogs. And what's interesting about dogs in antiquity is that they're not those lovely, beautiful, scented little things that they pet food that's really nicely presented on those ads that we see and who never poo on the floor. They're not like those dogs. What they were in the ancient world were roving scavengers in the city and they would uh, eat in the garbage dumps of the cities, eating and rolling in the refuse. So they were always unclean. And again, that's important because Paul is saying, you guys who think you're so clean by obeying the law are actually unclean because you ignore the person to whom it points, Jesus. So notice he's taken the terminology which the Jews pivot, sorry, wrong word, used to, used to attack their opponents and he's turned it back on them. And he does the same thing with the next description of them. Those men who do evil. The Jews would say, we do good. We obey God's law. Paul says you do evil because you ignore whom the law points to, Christ Jesus. Again, he's turned the description back on them. And lastly, he describes them as those mutilators of the flesh. There he's referring to circumcision. And what he's saying is, Rather than circumcising, what you're doing is mutilating. And the sort of the implication of what he's saying is, is that you're like the priests of Cybele, who used to cut off their testicles and put them in little boxes. You're like those pagan priests. You are mutilators of the flesh. Wow. Well, this is not the way to win friends uh, and to influence people. But Paul is attacking these people because the gospel they bring is not a gospel at all. It is the opposite of the gospel of Christ because it magnifies the law at the expense of the work of Jesus. And Paul realises a danger when he sees them. So having said that now, he then sets out in verses 3 to 4 the new identity that believers have. The first thing he says about them is that believers are the circumcision. Not quite sure what that means here in this context, but if you go over to Galatians 2.12, it's quite clear, 2.11, it's quite clear. What he means there is that we have been circumcised by the work of Christ. That's how we get into God's covenant community. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, That's the circumcision of the heart that takes place to go to some Old Testament images that are used in that regard too. So he then follows up that we are worshippers by the Spirit of God. So we're not worshippers because we go to the temple. We're not worshippers because we go to the new gathering called the Ecclesia, the church. We're worshippers above all because we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. That's the distinctive. He says that we boast in Christ instead of all that other stuff that the culture boasts in. And he says lastly that we have no confidence in the flesh. If you want to see what that means, read Psalm 51. That's a good psalm to read about David's absolute realisation of the depths of his sinfulness. And brothers and sisters, it's the same with us. We should have no confidence in the flesh, if I can put, use it Paul's terms. If you think about what we like, there's the sins we commit. Then there's the good that we should do, 
that we omit. And then there's the deceitfulness of the arrogance and pride that characterises our characters so often. And then we think about, a little bit more soberly, how we forget our first love, Christ who's laid down his life for us. And then we think even more soberly that here we are as adults and we're still acting like kids as far as our walk with God goes, that as mature Christians, how immature we are. Why is that? Because of the power of residing sin in us. So that's why Paul says, <coughs> he has no confidence in the flesh. There's not much there, in fact there's nothing there, in terms of human performance, it's going to recommend us to God. We're just going to blow it. So what Paul then decides to do is to set out, as he did in chapter 2, <coughs> another example. Except it's extremely bold in this context. It's the example of himself. I wouldn't like to set out myself as an example of anything particularly because I'm going to fall short. And Paul sets out all the things he could have boasted in before he came to know Christ. And we're going to see that he even boasts in the things that he had achieved as an apostle. And then he says, all of that is worth nothing. Now, what's changed his mind? And what does he replace it with? So let's now look particularly at verses 5 to 6. Now, <coughs> you might have noticed that when Josephus did his boasting, you, you might have picked up, there was two aspects to it. There was the stuff he inherited. Dad is a priest. Mum comes from royalty. It's just what he inherited. He was born into it. Then he talks about what he did. When I was 14, they all came to me for theological education. Then I had this marvellous military career, which ended up with me being taken off to Rome as a celebrity by the Emperor Vespasian. That's how his life ends. And he writes his histories there. What you inherit what you achieve. <clears throat> and Paul does exactly that in this passage. He starts off with what he inherits. And you'll notice that he inherits four things. And these are set out for us in verses 5 and parts of verse 6. So let's just go through what these things are. The first one that he talks about in terms of what he inherits. You'll see there at the beginning of verse 5, and that is that he was circumcised when he was a week old. So on the eighth day, he was circumcised. So what? That's what you're supposed to do, or at least your parents were supposed to do for you if you're a Jew. Genesis 17. Abraham, because he now belonged to the nation of Israel by faith part of a covenant people, had to be circumcised. That was the sign that you were a covenantal Jew. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day as he should have been, not on the ninth day, not on the seventh day or the fifth day, and he certainly wasn't like those Gentiles who came to know Yahweh and were either circumcised much later on in their life or weren't circumcised at all, but just sort of hung around on the periphery of Israel, worshipping God. No. He belongs to Israel from the cradle. Second thing he inherits is that he's an Israelite by birth. You see, he doesn't come from Rome. He doesn't even come from Tarsus, the city where he grew up. His fundamental identity is that he comes from Israel. Why is that so important? 
because God didn't reveal himself to Rome or to the city of Tarsus or to Mortlake, for that matter, in the Old Testament times. There was one nation that knew God, and that was Israel, and he belonged to that nation. Third thing that he inherited was that he belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. Guess who belonged to the tribe of Benjamin? King Saul. First king, not bad to have in your tribe. Guess what territory belongs to tribe of Benjamin? Ah, Jerusalem and the temple. Ah, good real estate to have. And of course, Benjamin was one of the two tribes that remained faithful to God in the south, while all the rest in the north abandoned God. Good tribe to be born into, Paul. And then he says he was a pure-blooded Jew. In other words, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What on earth does that mean? If you go down to Melbourne, you'll be able to eat at some great Greek restaurants down there because there's masses and masses of Greeks who live in Melbourne. It was the second biggest Greek city in the world. I now think it's about third. But that's because all of these Greeks came to settle in Melbourne. And what's very interesting is that they are still devoted to their culture. Their 1950s Greek culture. That's what they've maintained, the culture that came with them in the 1950s when they came out to Australia. And Paul is saying he's like that. Although he grew up in Tarsus, this large pagan city, His parents at home spoke to him in Hebrew and in Aramaic and worked through the scriptures with him. They remained solid Jews in their culture in the pagan environment around them. So there's the stuff that he inherits. He just gets that material on his CV because he happened to be born into those four qualifications. What he now does... In the next three statements is about the stuff that he and he alone had achieved. So we're very clear about this. (coughs) I'm going to read to you what he says elsewhere about himself as a non-Christian. And if you turn to Galatians 1.13, you'll see what he says. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Now that's what he says. For I was advancing in Judaism before many of my own age among my people, so I was doing better than all his contemporaries, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And you see it here, going back to Philippians 3, in fuller detail what he means by this. First of all, he says that as far as law-keeping, he was a Pharisee. That meant he belonged to the strictest party in Judaism of the time in terms of the interpretation of the law. He wasn't like the Sadducees who only accepted the law of Moses and ignored the rest. No, he accepted the entire scriptures. And also, the Pharisees were deadly serious about keeping the law. Certain parts of the Old Testament aren't exactly clear. When they say that you should not work on the Sabbath, does that mean, for example, that you can't go on the Sabbath and give your animals water? Old Testament doesn't say. So the Pharisees thought very hard about that and came up with the conclusion, well, you're allowed to walk five-eighths of a mile (coughs) and give them water and anything beyond that is work. Uh, It isn't there in the Old Testament, but what they're trying to do is to take the Old Testament law and apply it to their own situations. What they do by mistake is to invent all this guff, which doesn't exist in the word of God, 
and that becomes the traditions of the fathers, and Jesus criticizes that. But it doesn't matter in this context because Paul is a Pharisee, and he was deadly serious about this in terms of his godliness. Second thing he says about himself (coughs) is that he's a persecutor of the church. Why is that important? Notice the wording. You might have picked up in the previous passage I read from um, Galatians 1.15 that it says that he was very zealous about the traditions of the Pharisees. You'll notice that here he says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. I know the answer to this. I can almost bet bet it. Here we go. Who has heard of Phineas in the Old Testament? I won't ask you that you've even heard of him. Well done, Sarah. You can put that on your CV and post in that. (laughs) Phineas was the character who in the Old Testament, I think it's the book of Numbers, we hear that he burns with zeal for God's law. And what he observed was this. He saw an Israelite, male, bringing with him a female Moabite, non-Jew, going into a tent together to do you-know-what. Now, the law is clear about this. You are not to marry the nations around you, God's law said. It diminishes totally the sacredness and the holiness of Israel. So what Phineas did was grabbed his spear, walks straight into the tent, there are the couple at it, and he spears them right through the back in both cases. That's how zealous he was about the law. And Paul was exactly the same mentality. He was zealous about these Christians who spread about the heresy that a crucified man could be the Messiah. And worse than that, that this crucified man came back from the dead. How could that be? The Old Testament says that anyone who is crucified on the tree is cursed by God. These Christians are heretics. And he tried to stamp them out when he was not a believer. And the last thing he says, he just says, Um, again, using the translation in front of me, as for righteousness, and it says based on the law, actually all it says in, in the Greek is, as for righteousness, faultless. What's he saying there? There are 613 Old Testament laws, and Paul was saying, I've kept every one of them. Yes, not with the strictness that, strictness that Jesus requires. If you commit adultery in your mind, then you've committed adultery. If you're angry in your heart against your brother, then you've killed him. But in terms of all the externals, adultery, murder, the whole lot, Paul has kept every one of those laws, 613 of them. Now, that is some CV. And what you then see extraordinarily is that Paul says, all of this stuff from my past is just so much rubbish. And even more remarkably, notice in verse 7, verses 5 and 6, all the stuff from his past, everyone write on that? Then in verse 7, he moves into present tense. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the case, for the sake of Christ. In going into the present tense, Paul is also saying all the achievements I have had as an apostle up to now, I also dismiss. Now, what has brought about this incredible reevaluation? And the answer is that he had met the risen Jesus 
on the Damascus Road. And he realised there that the one who was crucified on the cross, (coughs) who was cursed by God's law, was cursed for him and indeed was the Messiah and more than that was the Lord of all who had risen from the dead. And Paul's whole construct of boasting was ripped apart and his whole identity was changed in a flash, literally. And what is interesting is that we too need to think about what our own equivalents of boasting are. Let's just think about one or two of these. Circumcision, well, we could say I'm baptised, I'm right. Israelite by birth. Well, we do belong, it's increasingly less the case, to a country that knew its gospel from its origins. There were ministers of religion accompanying the fleets that came out and churches were set up from the beginning. Tribe of Benjamin? Ah, we're Sydney Anglicans. They're the best. Only they in the entire world teach the Bible, as we know. Or you can be like me. I'm a five-point Calvinist. I'm sorry, the rest of you are just wrong. Hebrew of the Hebrews, Christian family, Pharisee, we support all the politically correct causes that matter in our culture. Persecutor, we do not tolerate sin, we will always speak out vigorously, we'll give no quarter, no mercy will be given, no sympathy will be offered, we will just relentlessly correct everyone on the truth. So we can have an ugly side to us too. And we can see some of the equivalents of those boasting in our own lives. Blameless in law-keeping? Well, I've just got a good reputation for integrity. Not like the rest of those losers. And what Paul does is to reverse all of that. And he says that what was in the credit account before the global financial crisis of the Damascus Road experience, all that stuff that was in the credit account after the Damascus experience was transferred to the debit account. It was all loss. All the shares I had were gone overnight. And you'll notice that in verses 7 to 8 in particular, Paul says that I consider this, I consider this, I consider this three times. Loss. Loss. So much rubbish. A profound change of mind. The unexpected reversal of all that he valued was gone. And its motive was this has occurred, this re-evaluation, for Christ's sake. Because of what Jesus has done for me, now this re-evaluation occurs for Christ's sake, his sake alone. And there's an unexpected acquisition. He knows Christ as his Lord. He gains Christ He's found in Christ. In other words, all the loss that is in the debit account is replaced in the credit account now, and Paul's using financial terms here, with something different. And it's the work of Christ. It's the obedience of Christ that we read about and heard about last week. That, that perfect life of obedience that went to the cross, wiped away our sin, that perfect life of obedience which is credited into our bank accounts so that God only looks at the perfection of Jesus, not at our failure. That is what is the investment that makes us infinitely rich. 
So it's spectacular stuff. And because of this, you'll notice in verse 9, Paul now speaks about what his aim in life is. You'll see it there. He says that he wants to be found in him. And here we move into a critical part of what I'm saying. Because I've entitled this, sorry, wrong word, I've titled this sermon, Dying and Rising in Christ, The Secret of Spiritual Growth. And in these two verses, we get to the whole crux of the sermon series. First of all, we have to be sure if we're growing spiritually that we're on the right side. That we're on God's side. We won't grow spiritually if we're not on God's side. If we don't know him as Lord. And how do we do that? It's explained in verse 9. First thing Paul says... He does not have a righteousness of his own. Well, we've seen how he's wiped the slate clean in that regard. All is now loss in comparison of the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Instead, he's got a righteousness, a right relationship with God, being accounted as having kept God's law perfectly, even though he hadn't. God now considers them that way because of three reasons. The first reason is that it's come through Christ. Notice what he says. That which is through faith in Christ. You'll notice if you look at your Bible, I didn't see this in the morning sermon, pity I didn't, that there's a little footnote which says that it can be translated either as faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. I think it's the bottom one that's the correct translation because Paul later on mentions faith again. And it's likely, it's not likely he's going to do that within about three or four words. And he's saying that the reason why we're in God's team is because Jesus has been faithful whereas we've been unfaithful. Jesus has been obedient to God, whereas we've been disobedient. But God's not worried about that because he's looking at the faithfulness of Jesus. His perfect obedience that went all the way to the cross and was vindicated by God, showing that what he had done was sufficient. It's the faithfulness of Christ that gets us in. Nothing else. And the second thing that he points out in that verse is that it comes from God. In other words, it's a gift from God. This is not something we've merited or we deserve because we're Anglicans or I deserve because of my great looks. It's because of the grace of God to us, his undeserved mercy. And the third thing, the way it's acquired is by us trusting in him. It's not trusting in him plus the works of the law. It's not trusting in him and us trying to get our lives in order before we put our trust in him. It's not trusting in him and thinking that I've always got to be really close to God in my walk because that's not going to happen. We're going to float away at times. No, we put our trust in what Christ has done for us and that's what God looks at. Deal over. Yes, he calls us to be obedient but deal over we're in nonetheless. So, spiritual growth. Are we on the right side? Brothers and sisters, I'm totally confident we're all on the right side. But it's always good to ask ourselves deep in our hearts if we are sure regarding that and to go over the foundations of our faith once again. Now we get to the really critical stuff. It's coming to an end quicker than you know. He says, I want to know Christ. There's his aim. To know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, 
of his sufferings, I'm just saying what the original says, becoming like him in his death. So there's all the stuff about dying and rising in Christ. This is the secret to spiritual growth. Now, what's Paul talking about? First of all, in terms of rising in Christ, Paul in Romans 6 says that when Jesus died and was risen, we too died and rose to newness of life. That has been accomplished in the past because of what Jesus has done. And also, there's a dying that's going on in the present. Uh, um, Sorry, a a resurrection that's occurring in the present. There's newness of life has begun. That newness of life that's shown in the spirit working out godliness in our lives. And there's the resurrection to come. But it's still odd, isn't it? Because if you look at what Paul says, he says, look carefully, that he knows the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. They go hand in hand. Isn't that interesting? It's not as if God is saying, Oh, oh, you are having a hard time, aren't you? Here's my power. As so much Christian teaching says. No, he's not saying that. He's saying that at the same time that you are desperately weak is the same time that you're incredibly strong in Christ. They go hand in hand. Paradox. And he also says that at that time of weakness, that is the time we experience the fellowship of his sufferings. What does that mean? Why are we powerful when we suffer? The answer is that when we suffer, everything we have relied upon is stripped away. And we have to rely upon God and God alone. Not, I'll get out of this somehow. Not, I'll start praying better when I get out of this. Not, I'll start reading my Bible again when I get out of this. No. When you're in absolute weakness and put your trust unreservedly in Christ, then that's when you know the power of God in the most extraordinary way. Third thing, we think when we're suffering that God is somehow out of there, away from us, and when the suffering returns, God will be back in our lives and it'll be all wonderful again. But that's not true. Paul says that when we suffer, that is the time we have the deepest fellowship with God we have the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, they're his sufferings. They're not ours. We are representing Christ. It's his sufferings that we're experiencing. And more than that, we're doing that in fellowship with Christ in our weakness. So the sting and the pain and the despair and the emptiness... (coughs) The frustration, the unresolved questions we often have with suffering are lightened by the fellowship we have with God during those times because we have no one else to depend on. And then Paul says that in this time of weakness and suffering and fellowship with God, where we're stripped of all of our resources and we know God's great power because we have no one else to depend on. He says, look what he says in the last part of that verse, we become like Jesus in his death. What does he mean? Jesus, in going to the cross, 
had to say no to himself. For our sake, obeying God. In suffering, when we are stripped of all our resources, when we know the fellowship of Christ in those difficult times, we say no to ourselves through the work of God's Spirit. We say yes to God and we say yes to the people that God will use us in ministering to through our suffering. It is an extraordinary verse and it helps us to see what Christian growth is like. I'm going to finish with two stories. Paul, of course, sees this rightly as the anticipation of the resurrection to come. But I want to say two things. The first one is just... the realisation of the deceitfulness of our boasting. I do remember uh, very well that in year 11 it came to uh, Meadowbank Boys High, a woman called um, Mrs Plowman, who happened to have um, the shortest miniskirt you could ever imagine, um, and she decided to set up an, inter, uh, uh, an ICF group, uh, an inter-school fellowship group. And uh, 30 young eager males went along on the first meeting and then realised that she was deadly serious and about five of us or eight of us, I can't remember, remained. And during that time I started going back to church, which I'd given the flick a long time ago to, and um, started to read my Bible and uh, Christian friends like um, Greg Bain, who um, uh, you, of course, know, and um, uh, also um, Keith Piper, who uh, incidentally stood for the Christian Democrats Party and is still a pastor to this day. Uh, they were my friends and encouragers. So it all seemed to be going swimmingly until the very night before the HSC English exam when I was studying King Lear, uh, the greatest play ever written, by the way. And uh, I'd continually put down King Lear, pick it up again, put it down, pick it up, and it just went like that for a long time. And what I was thinking about all the time was, how could I have missed it? How could I have missed the absolute arrogance of my life? How could I have thought that I ever had anything to offer to God? Couldn't I see this? Wasn't it obvious? And yet it had become blindingly obvious to me by the work of the Holy Spirit on the very night before my three-unit exam. I remember going to university and about six months later going to a house party where John Chapman spoke and I sat there ticking off all the points and realised I'd been a Christian for quite a while now but my boasting and arrogance had been dealt a death row that's never left me. Doesn't mean I don't boast, doesn't mean I'm not arrogant, but I know how desperately wicked it is and I try to get out of it as quickly as I can. First story over. Last story. Power and weakness. Uh, as a young guy, I decided to join up a beach mission when I was uh, around about 23 uh, I thought it would be nice to meet some good-looking Christian girls there. Found out it was all too complex and difficult to, and decided not to go. Didn't tell anyone about that, certainly not the beach mission leader. And on uh, New Year's Day, when uh, sorry, on the 26th, when Boxing Day, when these things start, I thought, geez, I hope no one's going to turn up in my house and actually think I'm going to this thing. So what I did was I took a little trip. I just drove way out to Windsor and beyond to make sure that if anyone turned up, uh, I wouldn't be around. And guess what? They turned up. And my mother lied about it all. Oh, he's been sick lately. Sorry about that. Not even knowing I'd planned to go. Anyway, about a decade later, God, in his great sense of humour, said, you're going back to beach mission, which I did. And it was going to be good. I was just going to work on the adults group for six years or so. 
except within two years, well, in fact, one year, he'd made me the leader of the uh, teens group, which I felt spectacularly uh, unsuited for. Did that for two years. And then in the uh, fourth year of being on that team, I was suddenly the leader of it all. So I worked very hard uh, on the leadership aspect of it, uh, spoke to respected people, uh, one of whom was, uh, of, of course, um, John Hewson, who uh, ran the Eden Beach Mission. I was at TAFA. And uh, had it all organised. Got down there on the 26th of December. The first thing I'm told is, uh, remember that lovely $1,800 tent we'd uh, bought? Well, there's now a great rip down the side because of the storm we had last night. Welcome to Beach Mission Gym. And uh, on the next day, um, when we were going to go out and visit, of course, all of the people in the caravan park with our literature and so on, two of the guys come to me and say, Jim, 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 look, we put our wallets and bike keys on the top of our beds and they're gone, grown. Of course, you go through all this training with these people saying, don't do that. Put it in the boot of your car. Or if you're a bike, then put it in the boot of my car. I'll be always around. But it was gone. So we met together as a team. Stan Nowlin prayed and he just said very simply, Lord God, please convict the people who have taken this to return it. And I just thought to myself, Stan, you're an absolute fool. That's not going to happen. We'll find the keys in the toilet. We won't find the wallets. The money will be gone. You are trying to manipulate God. That is a stupid prayer. That's what I said to myself internally, groaning as he prayed it. We went off and visited the caravans around us. And uh, you can imagine how those two guys probably felt as they were going around visiting people, perhaps realising maybe you're one of the ones that stole it. And we came back. Everyone settles down. The two guys come back to me. Guess what, Jim? We found the wallets and the keys returned to where they were with no money gone. Power in extraordinary weakness. And we suddenly realised if God can return lost keys and lost money through prayer, how much more can he return lost people to his kingdom? Amen.